0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to Walking with the Tengu. In today's supplemental episode, I'd like to tackle this distinction I'm making between what I've been calling traditional and modern martial arts. This distinction is largely, in my opinion, a falsehood, but due to its prevalence as a division in the wider martial arts community, I've been using it anyway. I'm going to guess that if you're listening to this podcast, you're very likely already someone who would label themselves a martial artist. Going further, You may also be someone who considers yourself either a modern or traditional martial artist, and have some sense in your head as to what you mean when you say that. Where this falls apart is when we start comparing definitions. One martial artist may use traits to justify themselves as a traditionalist that a modernist would prefer to take, or the other way around. In fact, many traits that go into the identity politics that make up the traditional versus modern division are in fact shared across these so-called factions. If you'll humor me for a moment, the following are a possible subset of traits of these two camps. For the traditional, they might be perceived as having formality, the use of forms, in Japanese called kata, Chinese taolu, Korean pumse, as a teaching slash learning method, and is often perceived by outsiders today as more focused on self discipline than quote unquote effectiveness, however, they've defined that complicated term. Think of karate, aikido, tai chi. This wasn't the case a few decades ago, but it largely holds true today. For the modern, they might be perceived as having minimal formality, no use of forms as a learning tool, and tend to be more competitive, and also are at times seen by outsiders as brutal and crude. Think MMA, Muay Thai, and BJJ. What neither is often willing to concede is that they have a perception of how their art is effective. The problem, though, is trying to define what effective means. This is a very broad topic. The way I typically try to tackle this topic in conversation with friends and training partners is to talk about goals. To say that something is combat effective, street lethal, or some other jargon popular among the self-defense community, is to ignore the fact that there are very broad spreads of how violence and conflict can be experienced. When a martial art doesn't take this into context, there is a tendency to see one's art as the hammer and every self-defense problem as a nail. Instead, I argue that there are different goals depending on the situation. Restraining an angry parent at a soccer game, a drunk uncle at a wedding, or an autistic child who has started trashing a grocery store, are all examples of violent conflict that very likely will never rise to the level of legally justified lethal force. In many cases, it is reasonable to define a win condition for an actual self-defense situation, which could include things like get away safely without injury, or survive long enough for your backup to arrive, <clears throat> or <clears throat> excuse me, restrain your attacker with minimal injury until the police can take over, and so on. Since I can't perfectly predict exactly what kind of scenario with all its variables you will face someday, and neither can you, hopefully you can see that there's a wide range in the type of so-called self-defense situations you might be faced with. I'm sure we can what-if ourselves into eternity with a multiplicity of scenarios that end up justifying anything from no force all the way on up to lethal force. The fact of the matter is that based on the laws of your immediate physical surroundings, which I highly recommend you go take some time to read over right now, you're either training to survive or you're training to go to prison. Most of the arguments I see over whether a style is effective or not usually revolve around two people, with two different definitions of the words violence and self-defense, trying to argue that their hammer is more effective than the other person's wrench at hammering nails while the other person is arguing that their wrench is better at pipe-fitting than the other person's hammer. What you have to do is sit down and think very hard about what your goals for your martial arts practice are. It's okay to have a few of them. Most people are going to put self-defense in there. This is where knowing what you legally can and can't do, and under what circumstances those rules apply, should have a big impact on what you train. However, not everyone is going to put self-defense as their first reason for training. This is where the many different variations of martial arts come in. Not every style trains for the same reasons. Even within styles, not every school of a particular style is going to train for the same reasons. And even within schools, not every student is going to train for the same reasons. That's a personal issue you have to sort out for yourself. Once you've defined what your goals are, you can make better decisions about your training. However, this doesn't solve the so-called division between traditional and modern martial arts. Those terms themselves have a temporal quality to them, the modern suggesting that it might be newer, while the traditional has the sense of being older. This doesn't always fit. Most so-called traditional martial arts are rarely much older than a century, if not less. While there may be a sense that these arts are in some way older, there are people alive at the time of this recording who have met and trained with the founders of both Aikido and Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Both are relatively recent martial art developments, but Aikido would tend to get categorized by people into the so-called traditional camp. Over the course of the last few years, an emerging field of academic research has taken to calling itself martial arts studies. Much of their early work has focused on how to define their field, and in particular how to define their field of study, i.e. what is martial arts. You can find links to these sites in our reading list. Sixte Wetzler, in a paper titled Martial Arts Studies as Kulturwissenschaft," my apologies if I butchered the German there, proposed five dimensions of meaning and nine classes of phenomena to assist in the definition of what is martial arts. These are not necessarily a definite or complete list, but serve as a starting point. Not all martial arts need to have all of these, but I would suggest that most have at least some. As we walk through them, think of how your own martial art embodies these elements. Oh, and if you want to read the paper for yourself, I'll put a link in the show notes. Instead of these boxes of traditional or modern that I've been using to categorize the martial arts, I rather like the idea of looking for and using the traits that are recurring and common in the martial arts themselves. Wetzler's paper provides us with five to consider. Don't think that every martial art has to be forced into these five. There may be more out there, and some arts may just not apply to one or more of these dimensions. The first dimension is preparation for violent conflict. We can interpret this through two contexts, civilian and military. The point in either case being the preservation of one's own physical safety, eliminating your opponent's ability to inflict harm on you and those you care about, and finally to impose your will on them. There is both a physical and a psychological component to this dimension. The Greek philosopher Seneca wrote that it is only the person who has fought in the ring who has endured blood and bruises that can be confident in his ability to win. Someone who has never been in a hard fight, that's one who is either scared or should be. They don't actually know what they're capable of. Having a psychological coping strategy for dealing with fear and violence is an important part of this dimension. The second dimension is play and competitive sports. This is how we boundary the physical struggle of our art within sets of rules. Usually we do not actually want to physically injure or destroy our opponent within these frameworks. It's done for the enjoyment, for the training, or for some kind of prize. The third dimension is performance. The display of our skills for an audience is an actual historical trait of almost all martial arts. This has also included elements of religious ritual, entertainment, and for employment in varying capacities through history. This dimension is sometimes looked down on as a corruption of an art, as the goal in performance is to please an audience and so-called real techniques are boring to watch. And there's a part of this that I can agree with. A choreographed and practiced routine can be a kind of dance that tells a story. But even in the current iterations of MMA, without a choreographed routine, there is still a kind of storytelling that occurs for the purposes of entertaining an audience. It is, in the end of the day, a performance. This dimension of performance is, in fact, one of the strongest uniting factors between the traditional and modern camps. The fourth dimension is transcendent goals. This is where all the practices we might term spiritual or philosophical go, as well as the teaching methods we use in our arts to shape our practitioner's character. These are not always explicitly stated, but may be implied through the intangible culture of a style. This is an area that I personally think tends to be stronger in the traditional arts and weaker in the modern ones. The fifth dimension is health care. If your art makes any attempt to provide you with a stated goal of exercise, of improving the speed, strength, flexibility, or other traits of your physical existence, then they're concerned with your health improvement. Do be warned, it's possible for these dimensions to overlap in places, and I really like them as a framework for thinking about a martial art rather than boxing them into traditional or modern. How do we then go about determining how an art fulfills any of these dimensions? To do this, we need to define the actual classes of phenomena that go into an instance of an art's expression. The first of the classes proposed by Wetzler is the body. This might sound obvious, but our bodies are our foremost tool no matter what we practice. Try to name anything that you do that isn't done in your body. It's also where we project our identity of being a martial artist. There may be ideal body types lifted up as goals to strive for within a particular style, though these don't always hold true. This class would be how your art alters and interacts with your body. The second is movement slash techniques. This is another obvious class, but it can be difficult to pin down. Much of what I term embodied knowledge can only truly be communicated from one person to the next through interpersonal contact. True understanding of a movement or technique can't completely come from books, photos, videos, or even podcasts, but instead from the physical body-to-body communication that occurs in training. There are problems with this because we don't all share identical bodies and we can never be 100% sure we understand something exactly like someone else. This isn't something we can measure, but it's something we all have or will experience as practitioners at some point. The third is tactics/concepts. This is the why your style would select a particular set of techniques or principles when faced with a problem. This is where what type of tool your martial art embodies, that is what set of problems it was designed to face, matter. If your tool or style is a hammer and you're faced with needing to tighten a pipe, you've gotten the wrong tool for the problem. This raises the issue of needing a selection of tools to handle the widest range of most likely problems you're going to face. What those problems might be will vary greatly depending on where you live. Another way I've heard to think about this is whether your art truly operates in a framework of self-defense or whether it is focused more on addressing the problem through a framework of self-offense. If I can absorb and contain an attacker's use of force with minimal violence, then that's closer in my book to self defense. If, on the other hand, I need to utilize my tools by applying force directly to my attacker, this would be a form of self offense. The fourth class is weapons slash materiality. Historical fantasy, as propagated in many martial arts aside, most combative work in human history has been done with weapons. Empty hands simply is not an ideal situation and weapons have been the rule, not the exception. There is a symbolic value in many cultures to representation of weapons as well, but that is a much deeper topic for another day. Just think of Excalibur in the Arthurian myths, or Ame no Nuhoko, the spear used in the Shinto creation stories to raise the first landmass from the sea. This class can also include training materials, such as uniforms, mats, and other practice equipment. The fifth class is media representation. There are books for most styles out there. In more modern times, the advent of photography and video have brought new dimensions to the spread of knowledge, and now with tools like YouTube and motion capture, there has never been a more voluminous spread of both good and bad martial knowledge in recorded history. This could also include movies and video games, sadly an area that it seems like most people try and get a feel for what works in a false sense of reality. The sixth class is teaching methodology slash learning process. How your style communicates its methods is important. This could include forms, drilling, sparring, or some combination of all these and something else. There are a lot of ways to teach people skills, some more effective than others. One expectation I find in the Western world is that they presuppose that they are going to be taught in a method they're familiar with, most often the educational model they grew up with in public education. Historically, this has not been considered an effective method of communicating practical physical skills, the skills of embodied knowledge where doing is a critical component of the learning process. You need the personal attention of an expert to guide you along the path, something that can't be modeled by a mass communication teaching method. The seventh class is myths slash philosophy. I've yet to find a martial art that does not have this. Fantastical origin myths are a hallmark of almost every style. One common version being the founder was weak when he was young, and through hard training and suffering he became capable and strong. These are a a way to communicate the necessity and meaning of one's training, why what we do is important, and how to think about violence. Philosophically, many of the modern arts have a tendency to to neglect overt teachings. What they don't realize, or at times acknowledge, is that even in the most combat-effective so-called modern school, The instructor and senior students are both verbally and non-verbally communicating a philosophy and attitude towards violence. Sometimes that philosophy has to be deduced from not their overt practice, but from the things they don't necessarily say outright. Through the lens of each student's personal bias, there's a lot of room for misinterpretation and projecting what one wants to believe instead of what is verifiable or can be tested. The eighth class is social structures. This is the relationships you make through training. In its simplest form between teacher and student, between the students themselves, these are often fundamental to how styles organize themselves internally and can include the relationships between organizations and schools. A family tree or lineage is an often talked about element I've been exposed to both in the Chinese martial arts and in Brazilian jiu-jitsu. The ninth and last class is the wider cultural context. This is how your society and culture interacts with your art. In some places, martial arts schools and styles have been seen as part of the governing establishment, and in others has been seen as a revolutionary force for violent change in government. In its simplest terms, then, historically the martial arts have been seen as either agents of chaos, that is destabilization, or as agents of order, that is, stabilization. They've also been tools to communicate and teach social values. Depending on what time period we're in, the martial arts in China were either viewed as heroes or as the agents of organized crime, sometimes a little of both. So let's look at an example of how these five dimensions and nine classes would work. When karate was transmitted to the West, it was understood most by that first dimension preparation for violent conflict. We see the echoes of this in the 80s films, The Karate Kid. Thus, karate was rated pretty highly in its value for self-defense. However, this is no longer the case. Other arts, such as Krav Maga and MMA, have driven it to the edge of this dimension in the eyes of culture. As for the second dimension of playing competitive sports, karate was also considered to be a so-called tough combat sport. But at this time, or I should say at this point in time, Has largely been replaced by Muay Thai, which has more recently been subsumed into the broader context of MMA training. In fact, MMA is largely the primary point of reference that the untrained population judges other martial arts against. However, while the focus of its martial dimensions have changed, karate has maintained itself through the furtherance of its training in the fourth dimension, that is, transcendent goals and has enjoyed a limited recent resurgence in the second dimension of competition through the work of various MMA competitors who cross-drain in karate. What this tells us is that the arts compete across the spectrum of these dimensions for a kind of validity in the eyes of the greater culture. Thus, whoever is in the center of this dimensional system becomes the point of reference by which all other arts are temporarily judged in that moment of time. As I alluded to earlier, I suggest this is currently MMA. This can be pretty frustrating when an art self-identifies with primarily a different dimension, say, the fourth of transcendent goals, rather than whatever the current point of reference puts forth as their most important dimensions. It makes little sense to compare Aikido to MMA as systems themselves, as they don't embody the same value of each dimension. They're both martial arts, but are subsystems that focus on different sets of values. If you do want to compare them, then it's usually in the context of your own training goals that has gone astray. Thus, it's not the fault of Aikido if you're training with a set of goals that are better fulfilled by MMA. You need to do a better job of choosing how to spend your training time. Judo is another example. Early in its history, it had similar weighted balance uh, between the first, second, and third dimensions, that is, preparation for violent conflict, competition, and transcendent goals. Whereas self-defense and personal growth were baked into Judo by its founder, Okano, Ever since judo's inclusion into the Olympics, we've seen the second dimension of competition take over and shape the growth of judo for the decades that have come since. The irony here, of course, is that the human body only moves through a limited set of physical patterns. Violence can be expressed across a wide spectrum of variations, but the kind of violence within that greater spectrum you are likely to face within your own culture is usually pretty definable. Thus, the principles behind the physical actions, that is, the techniques, of one art to the next are not as widely differentiated as we might like to think they are. In the Chinese martial arts, for example, there is little fundamental differentiation in techniques and stances between styles, so the traits that end up making a style distinct from another tend toward the methods used to teach. This could be the particular forms, uh, how the techniques are put together, or the systems used to decide which techniques to use and which to avoid. Having said all this, the art or grouping of arts that make up the currently popular point of reference do still have an impact on the other arts, no matter how close they are to the center or the periphery. As an example, prior to the early UFCs, there was little attention paid to combative ground fighting. The success of the early UFC Brazilian jiu-jitsu competitors was due to this blind spot in the other participants' training. Those early days can never be replicated again, as everyone stepping into the octagon these days knows that they need to be at least mildly proficient at grappling. On a historical note, I get the feeling we've had this issue for centuries. A little Google searching will bring you to some very early 20th century wrestling versus boxing matches that always end in the boxer on the ground. Our memories are short. Thus, you can now get on Amazon and find books about Aikido ground fighting karate grappling, and so on and so forth. While it's true that I can find a photo of Ueshiba, that is the founder of Aikido, applying a choke on the ground, and karate has a long history of its early practitioners being simultaneously versed in tegumi, that is the Okinawan folk wrestling style, that will look similar to sumo in most Westerners' eyes, the emphasis on this tool set within those styles has only recently come back into focus due to the primacy of an alternative set of systems occupying the cultural point of reference by which we judge the martial arts. I hope you've been able to contextualize your own training somewhere in this framework at this point, and I've been given some things to think about when looking at other martial arts. We truly need to increase our perspective and avoid overly narrow categories like traditional versus modern, combat sports versus martial arts. Instead of approaching the discussions that we all have within and between styles, as conversations of dominance, it would be more useful in my opinion to spend some time avoiding predetermined conclusions, and ensure we're using at least similar sets of meaning when we discuss these topics. As far as we know, violence is as old as humans. Violence is more traditional than any martial art, and in its many forms almost all humans have faced it in some fashion across all of history. We're looking at a problem, that all of our ancestors faced in some degree, and we can take their lessons and with an honest understanding of our own time and culture, apply their lessons to our own practice to make ourselves more effective at our stated goals. If you have thoughts on this topic, please contact me either through social media or over email at walkingwiththetengu at gmail.com, all one word. You can also sign up for updates at our website walkingtengu.wix.com/tengu. Thanks for listening and talk to you again soon.